BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, November 18th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Children's International is working to end child poverty around the world by giving kids access to a safe place, a team, and a path out of poverty by focusing on health, education, empowerment, and employment. Together with people like you, they're more than a nonprofit. They're a powerful force for change. Learn more at children.org. This summer, on episode 146, I interviewed John Hargrove, who was an orca trainer with SeaWorld, and he had some pretty harsh things to say about the quality of animal care uh, at the SeaWorld parks. And uh, a couple of my friends who are marine biologists asked me to talk to a marine biologist or an animal behavior specialist to see if they had a different perspective. Uh, So I did that. Uh, This week, I contacted Heather Hill, who is a marine biologist and a marine mammal specialist at St. Mary's University in Texas, and she herself works with some of the animals at SeaWorld San Antonio, where John Hargrove got his start. We should highlight the fact that the episode with Hargrove was very divisive, not only uh, because some of the topics are controversial, but a lot of our listeners pointed out that they felt as if Hargrove had an axe to grind with a former employer. And I'm wondering if your interview with Heather Hill, if she had, if Hargrove came up at all. So certainly I felt that Hargrove was not the most objective source. He had uh, personal experiences that left a bad taste in his mouth, and he was very passionate and vocal about that, Uh, which is why I wanted to do this second interview uh, with someone who might have a different perspective, but also someone who is grounded in science. The other other thing that I felt uh, wasn't as strong in the Hargrove interview is a discussion of how these animals are actually trained from a psychological perspective. So 
I wanted to talk to someone who is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology and who studies animal behavior and has studied animal behavior for 20 years. She has worked directly with animals, uh, though not, of course, as intensely as John Hargrove did. So there is a difference in terms of that experience, in terms of exactly how much time you spend in the water with an animal. Um, But she spent a lot of time working with dolphins, also with beluga whales, uh, and uh, and especially in studying mother-calf relationships with the orca whales that John Hargrove uh, worked with. I will never get tired of finding the, you know, niches of science. There's somebody out there that studies the psychology of orca whales, which is something I could have never imagined existed. And there are people out there who study animals in captivity as if that is a sort of I mean the, the the animals in captivity are different obviously than animals in the wild although we don't really think about their behavior as being fundamentally different and that's really what I wanted to understand from Heather Hill's perspective are we really talking about different animals with different needs because they are born in captivity And I'd just like to let our listeners know uh, that given some of Heather Hill's comments, uh, we did reach out to the director and producer of the Blackfish documentary, and we did not receive a response uh, to her comments in time to air on this episode. We'll let you know if they get back to us. So that'll be our interview for today. Shout out to Alison Kaufman, who uh, told me about Heather's work and introduced us online. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Heather Hill. Are you looking for that perfect holiday gift? Well, Blurb can help, because the ultimate gift is one that keeps on giving. Blurb's free bookmaking platform allows you to create customized, professional-quality photo books for loved ones from your computer, iPhone, and iPad. Make thoughtful, unique, and one-of-a-kind gifts that won't be forgotten. But you can also create family photo books, travel books, cookbooks, Instagram books of friends' photos, and so much more. You can turn your mouth-watering family favorites into a recipe book just in time for the holidays. You can relive this year's epic vacation in a photo book featuring all your memorable moments. You can print one copy or many. There are even free layout tools and experts available to help every step of the way. I was an early adopter of Blurb. I used it to create my wedding photo album and it saved me a ton of money and I very much cherish that book. So want to create a custom gift this holiday? Go to blurb.com slash minds and enter code minds for 25% off unique holiday gifts. That's blurb.com slash minds and code minds at checkout for 25% off. Blurb make a book, leave your mark. Shout out to one of our sponsors, Purple Carrot. Purple Carrot is changing the way we think about dinner with their exclusive plant-based meal kit. Delivering delicious recipes and pre-proportioned ingredients to your door each week, you'll discover new flavors and learn new techniques as you explore the world of plant-based cooking. Eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. There are over 20,000 edible plants in the world, and most of us will only get to experience a small fraction of these. That's where Purple Carrot comes in, creating new dishes every week inspired by seasonal flavors that will tempt and delight. Discover the power of plants with Purple Carrot. Find out what they're serving up this week by visiting purplecarrot.com and be sure to use the code MINDS to get $30 off your first order. That's purplecarrot.com and code MINDS to get $30 off your first order. Heather Hill, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much. Glad to be here tonight. So tell me a little bit about how you developed an interest in marine biology and and if that's sort of the right label for the kind of work that you do now. 
So um, as a kid, I uh, actually always loved animals and I had preference for dolphins in particular, really loved animals. And then um, SeaWorld actually opened up in San Antonio sometime in the late 80s. Of course, I don't should know, but I don't remember. And going as a kid, like many, many people, you know, oh, gosh, I want to be a dolphin trainer. But as I got older, you know, I, I kind of thought about what it would be like to be a vet, what it would be like to um, study animals, what kinds of options were out there. And so when I ended up getting into college, I still really loved animals. I read, you know, every book you could possibly read about animals. Um, and then in college, I decided to go into psychology as my major, because what I ultimately was thinking I wanted to do was do uh research on using dolphins in therapy with children. So fast forward that, that didn't actually work itself out, um, but instead I got to do what was even better, and that's actually to study animal behavior with a particular emphasis on marine mammals. So I study their behavioral development, their cognition, and I've been very lucky because I've been able to look at all kinds of marine mammals. So I started with dolphins, moved to sea lions, went back to dolphins, added belugas, and started working with the killer whales a little bit in um, different opportunities. And I specifically wanted to work with captive animals because at the time that I was going through graduate school, there wasn't, it didn't seem like there was a lot of captive research. So that was part of my desire was to see if I could make a difference in that. So what is the, you know, what are the kind of challenges of studying captive animals. I mean, you know, obviously the benefits are that they're right there. <laughs> but, you know, on the other hand, I feel like their behavior is, how similar is it to what's in the wild? And how do you sort of navigate that in, in terms of your interpretation of, of, of what they're doing? So that's, those are, you know, obviously great questions. At the time that um, we began this, you know, they had already been in captivity, or dolphins anyway, had been in captivity for quite a while. Um, and they weren't in large social groupings at the time. They were doing more, you know, pairs and maybe trios and things as they were trying to kind of figure out what worked best and how things went. So when I approached the field, the opportunity that I had um, with captive facilities that I was working at, they actually had larger social groupings. And they had mixed um, ages and mixed sexes in their social groupings. So the, the groupings that I was able to observe for the most part were kind of approximations of what you would see in the, the natural habitat. And so I think that I was fortunate because I got to see behaviors that ultimately, as we have studied them for 20 years now, at least in my, my books, we have seen behaviors that are more often similar than they are different. And granted, you know, pool walls restrict movement in some ways, but um, in terms of naturalistic behaviors, how calves develop, how mothers care for their calves, how um, juveniles interact with one another and how they interact with other sorts of animals that are there, that all seems to be so far from what I've seen with all the animals that I've observed seems to be pretty similar to what's out in the wild um, at this point. And so to what extent do these animals become domesticated? I mean, you know, it's it's a little bit like, obviously, a, a cat in the home is going to behave very differently from a lion in the wild, although you can sort of see some lion-like vestiges in the cat at home, and you can see some cat-like 
behaviors in the lion, you know, in the wild. But so, so you know, to, to what extent are these animals almost a different, I, I don't want to use the word species, I'm sure you have a better term for it. But, you know, what do you think about the, the, the idea that they are now domesticated, especially if they were born in captivity? Well, I mean, I think domestication, as we've seen with dogs and, and to some degree, maybe cats, it, it takes hundreds of thousands of years to fully become domesticated and for and multiple generations of breeding to, to start to change the genetics, which are driving those innate behaviors. Um, obviously, environments, they learn to adapt to different environments, whether it's a, a controlled environment or a home environment or a, a wild environment of some sort um, or a mix of those sorts of things. And so I think that I mean, that's one of the really neat things about animals is their ability to adapt to different environments. And, you know, if they don't if they don't change with the way the environment's changing, then they probably won't survive ultimately. So, you know, the, the, if you will, the smartest animals or the most adaptive animals are the ones that can adjust to the environments that they're in. So, you know, if I'm thinking marine mammals specifically, looking at what do marine mammals in a managed care setting or a captive setting do compared to a wild setting that's different, well, they can spend more time not moving into as many places, you know, so they still move, but they don't have to hunt for food. So what do they do with their hunting behavior? Well, that's not something they get to practice a lot, but you can create situations where you might be able to approach that. But if you're working with people, you probably don't want to elicit hunting behavior. I mean, it's sort of the same question about lions and zoos, you know, do you want them to practice their stalking behavior of a, of a, of a prey animal so that they can continue to practice that behavior. But is that behavior really adaptive to the environment that they're in at that particular point? Um, so domestication, as far as marine mammals go, I mean, I, I don't think we've had them in, you know, enough generations yet to really even approach what we start to see with dogs. And those are probably the most domesticated animals. Um, you might argue sheep and and cows could potentially be domesticated, but they're domesticated for different reasons than what you would for a dog or um, a marine mammal. So I don't know. I mean, I, I I don't think that we're near domestication at all with these animals. So it's an interesting thing that you brought up, and it, it reminds me of of some theories by neuroscientists uh, almost explaining how humans became civilized. You know, one idea is that when we learned to cook our food and we didn't need to spend all this time, you know, foraging and finding food, we had time to do things like write poetry and build pyramids and so forth. Yeah, creative I mean, things. You know, right? yeah. yeah. So so what are you seeing? Are there any of these kinds of emerging amazing behaviors in these, uh, what are, what are, what I've been told are, are very smart marine mammals, especially dolphins and orcas, um, that you wouldn't see in the wild and that give, you know, have, have sort of given us a sign that they are capable of more than we would have thought. Well, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say that they're building fires and creating poetry. Um, I, you know, I, it's, it's an interesting question, um, to, to be able to set aside, you know, extra time should, should lead to potentially these greater and bigger things. But again, it takes time to develop those things. That wasn't something that, you know, all of a sudden we can start making our food over a fire. So now we no longer have to hunt and gather and whoop, here we are building buildings. 
um, and writing poetry. So, I mean, again, it takes many, many generations. And so wait, wait, it, it, it didn't happen that way. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe in somebody else's history books, but not in mine. But um, so, you know, when I think about the animals, you know, what, what are they able to do with their time? Well, they have more time to play. And that's, that's actually one thing I would say, you know, if there's any sort of a difference, they're going to create opportunities to play that we see more frequently. Now, now research that's been done with by Kathleen Dzinski with um, wild bottlenose dolphins of a couple of in a couple of areas between the Bahamas and um, Japan and down in um, Roatan after um, off of Honduras's coastline. There are multiple groups of animals that she's been observing and she's studied play in them and the wild animals play but the captive animals get to play more and they create more novel experiences and they create more of their own play toys. So they play with the toys that are provided to them, but they also create opportunities to play. And then that's what's been really neat. Um, and actually it's kind of sad because my, my former mentor, Stan Kuchai happens to be his birthday today. Um, one of the things that he really explored was this idea of innovation and looking at, what these marine mammals do with their, with their time in play and um, really was finding some really great evidence that the captive animals innovate. The wild animals innovate, but they don't innovate, it seems, as often as the captive animals do. So they're creating new opportunities. They're creating more difficult opportunities. They're um, not just doing necessarily the same thing over and over and over again. They, they, they change up things. And it seems to be something that when there are younger animals around, they have kind of this contagious effect that leads the older animals to start to do some of those things as well. Um, and, and it seems to be kind of a two-way street. So the younger animals watch what the older animals do. The older animals watch what the younger animals do. And they kind of pass off different information that way. So one of the uh, criticisms I've heard about um, marine mammals in captivity is that their social groups aren't necessarily representative of what's in the wild. So you don't have, you know, for example, young adolescent or juvenile animals who do things that are undesirable, chastised by their, you know, older parents because that they're sort of not housed together. This is especially in the case of of killer whales. Do you think that's a valid? observation or do you feel like you know the the uh trainers become sort of surrogate parents well i certainly think that the relationship that they form with the trainers is it's a relationship in and of itself as far as like social groupings not being like what they are in the wild or or being um manufactured in some way potentially um i think that that's been one of the greatest changes that's actually occurred in the last well, certainly in the last 20 years, maybe in the last 30 years, um, my my time with captive marine, ma marine mammals started in 1997. Um, so, you know, I've been going at this for 20 years and really learning about the importance of social groupings and making sure that you have something that's a bit like what they would find in the wild. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting, as an aside real quick, and I'll come back to that point, is that in managed care settings, you can create situations that might, you know, have been found in the wild. So, for example, I'm thinking gorillas. And um, normally we think, you know, male gorillas can't live together. You have one adult male with the, the rest of the females and, and then the juveniles hang out to the point at which they become 
adult like and then they get ousted and have to go find their own troop basically um but there are apparently like bachelor herds in the wild that if you if they are raised at about the same time and they're coming together about the same time they can live in synchrony and and live with one another and so by discovering things like that you know we can still create social groupings in captive settings that allow you to, you know, simulate things that might be there. So with all of that in the background, I think that the social groupings at this point, um, I think they do their best to create what might be out in the wild, but of course that depends on the composition of the available animals. And if they don't have a full range of, of animals available, so you put the juveniles in one pool, that, that actually isn't a bad thing because in some cases, juveniles kind of have like their own gangs. If I'm thinking dolphins, bottlenose dolphins, the juveniles, once they get to a certain age, they kind of hang out in a bigger group away from the mothers and calves and away from the adult males and away from the adult females. And they're kind of mixed sex social groupings for those juveniles while they're trying to figure out this whole adult business and, and integrating with larger social groupings. Killer whales, different social structure, right? So you've got more of a family social structures and the males in terms of the resident pods don't, don't leave. They, they tend to stay with their, their matrilineal groupings. So, I mean, I kind of think, you know, if you're asking the question about are the, are the relationships with the trainers, you know, acting as substitutes for, you know, the adult figures that are there. I mean, from my experience, those adult, those relationships are very important for those animals, but so are the relationships within the social grouping that they're, they are living in. So tell me about how the training actually happens. This is something that, you know, I've been very curious about and, you know, I, I, I guess my question is, you know, there obviously are a number of different ways to train animals, some of which seem um, more effective and even more ethical than others. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, it's not great to punish your dog every time he does something you don't want him to do because now your dog is going to associate you with punishment. <laughs> um, so what is the kind of ideal way uh, to train a killer whale? And do you see the application of this kind of idealized training in the, um, you know, in, in the places that you've been um, working with, and and just for so that our listeners know, um, uh, SeaWorld San Antonio is your is the primary place in which um, you've conducted this kind of research, or are there other places as well? So SeaWorld San Antonio is the longest association that I've had. I'm going on a 10 year research um, collaboration with them, completely independent. But I've also worked at um, the uh, Navy Marine Mammal uh, facility down in in San Diego. And I've worked with um, what was formerly Marine Life Oceanarium in uh, Mississippi. But I've also done observations um, in uh, Georgia Aquarium and Shedd Aquarium and have had opportunities to create collaborations with other folks um, at uh, actually Marine Land of Canada and with uh, Mystic Aquarium with, with some collaborators there, um, as well as a, a shorter collaboration um, with the group down in Roatan. Um, so I've, I've had a number of opportunities to, to observe animals at a number of locations. Killer whales primarily have been in San Antonio, um, and I spent three years observing the, the population there. And then 
all the other animals, belugas and dolphins, they've been at a variety of facilities along with sea lions. So back to your question. <laughs> the- yeah. So, so, so let's say, first of all, is there a lot of variability in terms of, um, in your opinion, of sort of how, and you don't, you know, we don't need to go into details of who's doing what right, um, in terms of how these animals are trained, or is there kind of a standard method that's being applied across multiple locations? So the standard method is now positive reinforcement. My background is in psychology, experimental psychology. So I teach a theories of learning class. And so we talk about how to use classical conditioning, how to use operant conditioning. And we, and, you know, often my students look at the, the, the original studies that were performed with rats and mice and birds, um, by Skinner and incorporating both punishment and reinforcement into those original studies. And so, like you mentioned, you know, when you use punishment, on a dog, a lot of times you may end up affecting your relationship with your dog because of the use of punishment. We could also say the same thing with our children. If we use punishment with our children, we may be affecting the relationship with our children. But if you apply the principles of operant conditioning properly, which in the case of punishment should be done consistently and it should be done quickly, immediately after the behavior has taken place, and it should be done with an appropriate intensity, and it should be done with the right type of punishment, you can correct the behavior that you are looking to correct. And that means that you're going to decrease the behavior. So so what my goal is when I apply punishment, so I squirt water in my dog's face as opposed to spanking my dog in the nose or hitting my dog in the nose, is I'm creating an aversive experience that my dog doesn't want to experience again. But I'm probably not harming our relationship by the use of that water if I'm not doing it all the time. So the goal for punishment is to not use it all the time. It's to use it to correct a behavior that is occurring probably, you know, intermittently. If I have a behavior, and this is what I teach my students, our goal is reinforcement because you want to see the behaviors that you want to see. And the cool part is, is that if you encourage the behaviors you want to see, the behaviors that you don't want tend to not show up. And the times that they begin to show up are the times that they're often associated with attention of some sort, which is a reinforcement. So what I see at all these facilities has been a wonderful move. And it's and, and it's not something that's been in the last 10 years. It's really been in the last 40 to 50 years of the use of positive reinforcement with any animal, whether it's a dog or cat, a killer whale, a dolphin, a sea lion, because you get a lot farther with reinforcement than you do with punishment. So behaviors change rapidly. You see the behaviors you want um, through the use of reinforcement, and it can be through primary reinforcers like food, or it could be through secondary reinforcers that they're learning about as being something they like. So attention, praise, a whistle for a dog or a whistle for a killer whale. Um, some of them like water, some like to be sprayed with water. Some of them like rub, rub down. So animals have preferred reinforcers just like people do. So when the, these behaviors are being shaped, do you find that the animals ever are, for example, um, not given food so that they will want the reinforcers more or deprived in some other way? Or, and, and if they were, how would, you know, how would that affect their learning? So anytime you start to deprive animals of things or people of things that they want, 
Well, they'll get frustrated potentially. So basically, if we're going food deprivation from a true learning paradigm, you do that to create a motivation, motivational state to get the animal to work for less food because they're hungry and therefore they will work more and they'll work longer. So that works okay with like rats and birds and, um, you know, smaller kinds of animals. But when you start working with the larger mammals, they start to food motivation can be effective for some animals, but for other animals, it becomes frustrating if they're not getting the reward that they expect from it. So is that a wise thing to do with a large mammal or marine mammal like a killer whale or a elephant or you know a lion and the answer is no so i have never seen food being deprived from the training sessions that i've observed but i haven't worked with them directly so you know i don't know if that's something that would be used at, at a facility typically for things but as far as i've seen you know food is only one reinforcement and they a lot the food throughout the day um, with training session. So if an animal chooses not to participate in a training session, well, then they're not going to end up with food. But does that make them hungry? It might, but uh, clearly that's not the motivation for them to perform their, their actions. It seems to be that if they're performing an action, they're doing it more for the attention of the trainer or maybe even for the pleasure that they have getting in it. So it's not they, they're fed. You know, from what I've seen, the animals are fed, they're not hungry. So when they perform behaviors and they're being shaped a behavior, they're doing it more for the intrinsic value would be my guess than it is for the food value. But with the shaping, any, any shaping, a trainer knows, any good trainer knows that when you're shaping a new behavior or a complex behavior, they're not going to get it first. And I often play the training game with my students themselves and I say, all right, guys, you don't get to ask any questions. You just have to keep trying things until you finally figure out what you're being rewarded for. And what they will often express is <laughs> confusion and, and frustration because they're like, I didn't know what you wanted and I didn't know what was going on. And, you know, and, and that's a human who I could speak to and say, hey, this is what I want you to do. But if I'm working a dog or if I'm working a dolphin or a killer whale and I want to shape a behavior, a good trainer knows when the animal isn't getting it. And they will try, try, try. And if typically a lot of these facilities will actually have kind of a set of criteria in place and they'll say if an animal fails on X behavior two or three times in a row, we're going to go on to something else that's a little bit more appealing, a little bit more reinforcing because we want the animal to succeed, not to fail. And to what extent are these animals compliant? I mean, do you feel like, okay, you know, seven times out of 10 when they're asked to do something, uh, they do it? Or is it like three in 10? Is it is it very much dependent on the animal? Um, so what is the variability in compliance? That's a really great question, and that's actually a question that should be looked at empirically, to be honest. My best guess, looking anecdotally and watching sessions and, and, and you know, experiencing it in other contexts, would be that generally the compliance is um, pretty consistent. Most, most animals will attempt. They will continue to comply. They'll, they'll, you know, if you ask them to do something, they certainly will, will attempt to do what they think they want you to do. There are certainly times when the animals 
aren't interested in um, participating in a training session. And so they will maybe sit in front of the trainer or maybe they'll go swim away. Um, and that that kind of tends to, you know, from the things that I've noticed that may be related to a current social issue, it might be related to breeding season, it might be related to maybe an animal isn't feeling well. So there's a whole lot of other factors that, you know, you just can't tell. But, you know, generally, if the trainers have a good relationship, the animal has been, you know, well-trained, then I would say compliance is typically pretty high. But that's all based on anecdotal information. That's There's not any empirical study that's actually looked at that. And so what do you think about, um, you know, do, do these animals or have you noticed that these animals become less or more compliant over time? I mean, I'm kind of thinking, is there like a captivity fatigue that sets in um, or is are, are the trainers relatively good at changing things up so that the animals uh, don't seem to get tired of doing what it is that they're doing? I, th- I That's a great question. I think that um, at the facilities that I've been at, even the facilities that had pretty consistent setups where, you know, the animals knew exactly when it was a training time, exactly when it was a show time, exactly when it was, you know, whatever they've been doing. So they didn't use a lot of variable um, schedules. The animals were still very interested in participating in whatever it was that they were doing. Um, You saw excitement you saw a um, willingness to to comply, if you want to use that terminology, to a, a, a discriminative stimulus or to a hand signal or to a, a request by by the human. Right? Um, humans can't make any of these animals do what they don't. I, you know, I can't make my children do what I want them to do. Um, we, you know, we are working really hard to to get individuals to comply, and there are sometimes situations that they just aren't interested in, in doing it. So the older an animal is, you know, you could argue that some of them get cranky and don't want to do it. And then some of them are like the go-to animals. So I really think that's where we start to get into sort of individual personalities. Maybe there's some reinforcement history back there that um, has shaped for shaped them for who they are. But, you know, whether I'm talking about a 30 year old or an almost 40 year old um Pacific white-sided dolphin or an almost 40-year-old beluga or I'm looking at a 30-year-old killer whale, they're as interested in doing things with you as, you know, the the five-year-old or the six-year-old who's been working with for a few years. So I, I don't, to me, it's not a matter of being in captivity that long. I think it's it's an issue of probably again, a combination of things, individual differences, um, social structure, how we're feeling on that particular day. Um, you know, do I like, (laughs) apparently there's some trainer preferences that are coming into play. Um, that's again, reported by trainers themselves, but not studied empirically. Uh, we tried to do a study that, uh, looked at whether or not animals could discriminate between familiar and unfamiliar humans. And so we used familiar trainers that that they had, you know, there are a variety of lengths of time of the relationships between the trainers and the animals that we were testing. And we used novel humans. And I couldn't tell you, I mean, what we found was that they tended to look longer at the individuals that they didn't know at all. 
than they did at the individuals that they had been working with for some amount of time. And, and one individual wasn't all that much more interesting than another individual that they were familiar with. So, you know, there is more research that needs to be done with regard to, you know, the influence of trainers on particular relationships with certain animals. But, you know, definitely the trainers feel they have varying quality relationships with these animals. And it's probably driven to some degree by success of, um, you know, animals understanding what the humans want and humans understanding what the animals are providing them. So SeaWorld has recently come out and said that they will no longer breed orcas in captivity, um, which means that your research pool is is sort of dwindling in a sense. What do you think that we can learn from animals like this in captivity that is going to be lost once uh, the the final animals that are now captive uh, die? I think that if if we were able to really take advantage of understanding their cognitive abilities, um, understanding how behaviors develop in, in, and that's, that's the real issue. So there's, there's two issues that I see from the breeding ban with, with these animals and would be true of any animal, whether it's a killer whale or, um, a bear or a jaguar or a panda bear or whatever, whatever it may be is that by removing the opportunity to breed, you're taking away one of the very important facets of their behavioral repertoire of what they do naturally. And, um, and that's something that if you, if you have animals in a captive setting, you should give them every opportunity to engage as many natural behaviors as you can. And so the opportunity to breed or to engage in what we call sociosexual behavior or sexual behavior is something that, um, all these animals should have the opportunity to do. But you don't know when they're going to do it and you don't know when copulation actually happens. So you have to limit now who's going to be with whom in order to avoid the possibility of breeding. So, so by, by doing that breeding ban, we are taking away opportunities that are intended to be um, enriching in terms of socialization process of, of all these animals. Um, along with that, uh, when I think about opportunities that are beginning to be lost, well, I'm not going to be able to watch the development of a killer whale calf after the last one is born here in San Antonio. Um, we've had opportunities to do so in the past, but seeing how infants work with their mothers and seeing how infants work with juveniles and how juveniles interact with infants and then so on and so forth with whether it's maternal care or um, offspring and male, um, male offspring, male, adult male and male offspring interactions, we're going to lose out on a lot of that stuff. So we're going to begin to be limited to questions of, you know, what are the preferences of these animals, um, when it comes to enrichment? What are their preferences for food potentially? How do they interact with each other who they have access to, um, in a limited way because we have to prevent breeding possibilities? So I think that, you know, what am I going to continue to look at? Well, I'm going to look for opportunities to study their cognitive abilities. We're going to look for opportunities to study their physiology. We're going to look for opportunities to study their sensory systems um, because those are things that we can do in a captive setting, and those are things that we need to do to, in order to understand how things like anthropogenic noise affect these animals and what sorts of um, what sorts of impacts do those things have on a group of animals that we can control, you know, their experiences with. 
So it, it's it's going to be it's going to take a while, obviously, long-lived animals. Um, so we're not going to get rid of them in the next five or ten years, but uh, certainly it will limit the kinds of questions that we'll be able to ask. Um, and there are lots of questions that we need to ask that we have no idea about. And even questions that you could try to do in a wild setting are still going to be affected because you can't always watch the same animal from all perspectives all the time in the wild. So setting aside the kind of research questions, which, you know, I, I can see the benefit of, you know, especially if we're trying to understand how we humans are affecting animals in, in the ecosystem. What do you think about the ethics of having these large, very social, very supposedly smart animals in captivity? So I, you know, I chose to study animals in captivity because I think that in, in this case, the benefits outweigh the, the costs. I think being able to, if you can house the animal properly, and that means the, the, the amount of space that, that is deemed necessary to create um, places for um, animals to go to if they need a respite from each other. Um, you need to have the right social structure. You need to have the right opportunities to be able to um, come together and, and leave one another as as it's as it's needed within that social grouping. Um, so, I mean, I, I chose to study captive animals and I and I believe strongly in the value of having captive animals, because if you want individuals to really get to understand and to connect with an animal, they need to see that animal in person. They're not going to get to get out into the Pacific Ocean and you know, be in a boat. Not everybody gets to go up to um, the San Juan Islands to see the killer whales and their natural habitat. Not most people aren't going to get up to Alaska to see the Cook Inlet belugas. And if they did, they probably aren't going to see them very long because they're you know, ex becoming extinct because the population isn't rebounding. So that means now we have to go up to the Arctic Circle to see belugas and and look at the St. Lawrence Seaway. Um, and the majority of individuals from Texas <laughs> or Florida or California or let's say Wisconsin, they're not going to have the means with which to explore these natural habitats. I mean, how many people are going to really be able to go over to Africa to see African elephants um, in their natural habitat or gorillas and chimpanzees? So watching documentaries is great. Watching it on Facebook and all these cute little clips that show up, that's awesome too and makes people laugh and it makes people think. But what really makes the difference, in my opinion, is actually getting to see the individual animals in person and uh, hopefully being able to watch them engage in a species typical behavior, a natural behavior. But in order to do that, you have to sit and watch. You have to be patient. They're not circus animals, so they don't perform on command unless you're doing a show, which is demonstrating those kinds of abilities. And I think there's merit to that. There are merit to some of those shows because they are showing the animals capabilities. They are allowing people to connect with them to be able to see those sorts of things. Um, and the animals are choosing to participate. We don't have, trainer doesn't have control over whether this 10,000 pound animal chooses to come over and, and go do the behavior it's been asked to do. Um, the animal's choosing to do it. And I think that the variability that they introduce into shows, if it's done properly, I think that the opportunity to to be exposed to large crowds that make lots of noise is very exciting. 
for the animals. I mean, even cockroaches show a social facilitation effect. They like having other cockroaches and other animals watching them as they run through mazes. They do it faster as a result of having other animals around them. So, you know, so I suspect that the same thing happens with all of these animals that we think that we're interfering with their lives of what people have said. But I, I think that it's an, I'll stop babbling, but <laughs> I think it's an important, an important piece. And, and I, I think that as long as the captive environment is supportive of the natural behaviors of the animals and allows them to do those things that are typical, then you're, you're in a good place. They're in a, an adaptive place. They're in a place that's ultimately, hopefully, stress-free. So there's been a lot of controversy recently, as I'm sure you're well aware, about SeaWorld and uh, these other kinds of marine parks um, with the Blackfish documentary and, and so forth. Is there one particularly glaring thing that you feel that people should know uh, where, you know, some of these uh, controversial ideas of are, are actually, you know, being being misinformed? <laughs> well, personally, I think um, pretty much 99% of Blackfish was entirely false and completely played on the emotional um, mindset of people. And if there is any truth within any of that, which there are some facts in there, those are facts that were true when the parks were, were first opened and as they were just trying to figure out how do you take care of a large animal like that. Um, I think that the, the real problem is that when people watch movies like Blackfish or The Cove is that they take what they see at face value and they're heavily influenced by the, the music that is played in the background, by the noises and the sounds that are played on the soundtrack. And they're not looking at it critically. They're not using their critical thinking skills. They are just taking what's been told to them at face value. And and that's, I think, a real travesty. And I think that has put us where we are today. And so it's not just the killer whales now. It used to be the elephants. But now we're going to do the killer whales. And then it'll probably move into other animals. And at some point, we're going to end up with um, animals that are supposed to be in their natural habitat. And we have no natural habitat left for them. So I, I'm, I don't know. I'm, it's... It's a, it's a very huge disservice to all folks who are interested in animals. I think it's important that we maintain ethically their, their environments, whether it's a natural habitat or a captive environment, and it needs to be as supportive of their welfare as possible. But I don't think it needs to be an either-or situation, which is what Blackfish and the Cove and other sorts of things have, have created. Well, that gives us a lot of food for thought. And I, I really appreciate your perspective. And I want to thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Heather Hill. Thank you very much. So I have to say, it now feels like I heard an interview that almost took the exact opposite position that John Hargrove did uh, back in episode 146. How do you decide um, where to fall on this spectrum? I mean, you interviewed them both. Well, of course, they both have their own baggage and their own interests and their own passions. And I have to say that I feel as though John Hargrove probably swung the pendulum in too too far in, in on one side and that by talking to Heather, I was able to understand the perspective um, from 
you know, a different side. You know, do I still think that it's ethically questionable to train large mammals that are very social and very smart to do, you know, perform for us in shows? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a hard thing to come to terms with from an ethical perspective. By the same token, I go to the zoo all the time with my son, and it's a way for him to see these animals and get to know these animals and have respect for these animals that I don't know how else I could show him other than showing him, you know, videos on television. But, you know, he sees cartoons on the iPad. So how can he then tell the difference between a cartoon, you know, at at his age and a real animal? Not until he goes to the zoo does he start to see that these are real animals. So, you know, I, I have my own biases that I bring to the table. But I think the thing that I really liked about the conversation with Heather is this um, emphasis on changing the way that animals who are domesticated or in captivity are trained, and that we really have to think about positive reinforcement, uh, not necessarily uh, behaviors that are punishing, because when you punish an animal, the animal associates you with the punishment in addition to. So, so, it, so this idea of the way that you train an animal can shape your relationship with them in profound ways is really interesting. And then especially when she talked about how there are certain types of training traditions in which that is harder to change. So, for example, training horses, uh, where there is still some, you know, a a large tradition of sort of physically punishing horses. Um, And I can see that this summer I went to a a dressage show in France, the the national, um, you know, the equitation um, thing. And, and it was amazing to watch what these horses did, but they were so incredibly disciplined um, that it did make me wonder, you know, how did we, how did they get to be so perfect in their behavior? The captivity inspiring conservation is a very strong argument. And it's an argument that has been compelling for a long time. Um, but I have to admit, even after listening to both of these, I'm going to have a hard time personally going to SeaWorld and watching the show. And I I just don't think I can do it. There's something about the fact that these animals are so intelligent. And Heather really underscored that in a lot of ways. That gives me pause. Yeah, I I don't know that I can go to SeaWorld and and watch those kinds of shows. Could I go to an equivalent of a zoo in which uh, animals that are in captivity are, you know, helped back from illnesses or, you know, somehow the way I feel like some of these really good zoos where, you know, the focus is on ecology and on conservation, I'd be more likely to go to a place like that. Um, I don't know if that'll ever exist for orca whales or those kinds of large marine mammals, but maybe they will if we, you know, continue to create an environment for them that is uninhabitable. (laughs) Um, Maybe there is an argument to that kind of conservation effort. I love the existential question, though, of whether captive animals are the same as their wild brethren. Are they really different creatures at this point? I mean, look, the cats that we have in our homes are pretty different from the cats that roam the savannas. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Miller, Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and Ken Murayama. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your opinion of animals in captivity, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. 
And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Geesh. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.